Hey everybody, welcome to Talking Scripture, a podcast where we illustrate relevance and application of the scriptures in Come Follow Me. We also dive into the history and cultures of the text. Thanks for taking the time to share and subscribe to this podcast. For show notes, head over to our website, TalkingScripture.org. Welcome to Talking Scripture. I'm Mike. And I'm Bryce. And today we are in the end of Exodus, and we're doing a couple selections out of the book of Leviticus today. And for a lot of people, this gets really, really heavy. Now, some of you love this and are coming to this podcast because you know we're going to jump into a lot of the details, but other people, this is the portion of the Old Testament that gets very, very heavy. As soon as we start doing the laws and the sacrifices of the law of Moses, it's kind of like when you read the Book of Mormon and you're committed to reading the Book of Mormon and you love First Nephi and the Tree of Life and coming to America, then you get into Second Nephi and you love Lehi's discussion— And then you hit those Isaiah chapters, and you just kind of sputter. Well, this is the point where a lot of readers of the Old Testament start to sputter, because we're into the Law of Moses. Leviticus really does kind of read like a technical manual, and there's kind of a joke about men and putting together furniture. I don't know, Bryce, if you've ever heard this joke, right? We're putting together furniture, and then we can't quite get it put together, and what does our wife say? Read the manual. (laughs) Did you read the manual? And are you one of those guys, Bryce? Um, I have learned from many experiences that now I start with the manual. I don't know that that's always been the case, but now I start with the manual. I, I don't. I'm one of those people where I'm like, oh, I can do this. And then, you know, you know you're in trouble when you kind of get down to the— What are these extra parts? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> one time my brother had our carburetor torn apart, and we had it all put back together, but we had all these extra parts, and we kind of looked at each other and went, oh, great. Well, they now- <laughs> probably weren't important anyway. <laughs> and so the book of Leviticus is really like that manual. And I get it. If, if you're one of those people where you're like, oh, really? I don't want to read a manual. Well, there's good news. We're only covering Leviticus 1, 16, and 19. And I get the people that put together the Come Follow Me. I get it. They're like, are we going to spend multiple weeks covering Leviticus? How are we going to get through this 1,200-page massive tome in a year? And so what they did was they had to call for some cuts and it's a wise choice. They had to cut some of this stuff out, out of Leviticus. And being the, the nerd that I am, you know, we kind of went through and outlined the whole book of Leviticus. So even though we're not going to cover it all in this podcast, know that in the notes, we outline this stuff. If you want to take the time, right. you will find tremendous insights, especially as you look for Jesus in the law of Moses, as you read through some of the details of this law, things that we're not going to cover, like the laws of purification. Yep. Why would they have laws of purification? And what does that have to do in 2022 with me purifying myself to be more like Christ? Yeah. So, I mean, and if you're one of those people where you're like, okay, I'm a visual learner, Mike, I really don't want to read 10 pages of footnotes and outlines, then we have something for you too. If you go to one of the first slides in the show notes, you know, we put the slides out there and this slide is called the basic principles of the law of Moses. And it's just what Bryce said. The goal is to be holy or to be like Jesus. How are we going to do that? We're going to strengthen your faith in Christ. And underneath that main idea are four pillars. And the four pillars of the book of Leviticus are sacrifice. That's the first six chapters. and Because we all have a natural man we have to overcome in order to be more like Christ. Yeah, absolutely. And then the next pillar is cleanliness. That's 11 through 15. 
And then the third pillar is separation, and that's going to be Leviticus 11 and 18 through 20. Separation is important. Because we cannot save the world if we're like them, if we're doing everything that they do. We have to be different. We have to be a peculiar people. Yeah. And then the fourth pillar is remembrance. Bryce and I are actually going to talk about this in this podcast. I know that Come Follow Me doesn't cover chapter 23, but we're going to get into that a little bit because we feel that that's important, talking about the feast and remembrance. President Kimball said that perhaps the most important word in the English language is to remember. And every single week as we listen to the sacrament, four times in those two prayers, you're going to hear the word remember or remembrance. It is important to the Lord that we hold feasts and festivals that constantly remind us that we need Christ. That's a beautiful summary, Mike. So I want to remind everyone what the law of Moses meant to the Nephites who probably had more detailed instructions than we have. And they saw Jesus in the law of Moses. And the law of Moses is heavy unless you get that concept that it points to Christ. So let me just walk you through a list of Book of Mormon references to the law of Moses and point out what they saw in the law of Moses. Now, I'm going to do this quickly. If you want the full list, you can go back to our show notes and take some time with them. In 2 Nephi 11, Nephi said that his soul delighted in proving unto my people the truth of the coming of Christ, for this end hath the law of Moses been given. He saw that the law of Moses proved the coming of Christ. In 2 Nephi 25, Nephi says, Notwithstanding we believe in Christ, we keep the law of Moses and look forward with steadfastness unto Christ until the law shall be fulfilled. In Jacob chapter 4, Jacob says, We knew of Christ, and we had a hope of his glory many hundreds of years before his coming. And not only we ourselves had a hope of his glory, but also all the holy prophets which were before us. Behold, they believed in Christ and worshiped the Father in his name, as we also worship the Father in his name. And for this intent, we keep the law of Moses. It pointing our souls to him. I think that's one of the most significant ones, that Jacob understood that the law of Moses pointed their souls to Christ. And then he adds, for this cause, it is sanctified unto us for righteousness. By the way, Bryce, I really see this list as you're going through the Book of Mormon as another way that certain Israelites viewed and contextualized these laws And I think one of the things the Book of Mormon proves is this idea that not everything as it's presented in the Bible is the way it was, meaning that there were people that were of the house of Israel that understood the things associated with the temple, and their understanding of God was different than the things that are portrayed in the Bible, meaning that they believed in this God who would come down and die and then be resurrected. I mean, the Book of Mormon clearly is teaching this, and a lot of that kind of idea is taken out of the Old Testament. And I think this once again reiterates what Nephi says in 1 Nephi 13, that many plain and precious things were removed. And then my contention is in scholarship, we can actually pinpoint the dates when those things were removed right around the seventh century. We see a lot of reforms. I'm gonna call that apostasy. There's a lot of apostate things that happen to their religion, 
and they lose the nature of who Jesus is. And Nephi is like, I think that's one of the reasons why Nephi is so adamant that this be talked about. And I think you're making a great point, Mike, that when we talk about plain and precious truths being removed from the Bible— This week, we need to remember that plain and precious truths were taken away from the law of Moses as well, every detail of the Bible. So we've got to try our best to put some of those plain and precious truths back. And by far, the most important plain and precious truth is we have to go back and find Jesus in the law of Moses. Absolutely. Let me continue my list. In Mosiah chapter 3, the angel speaking to King Benjamin said, Yet the Lord saw that his people were a stiff-necked people, and he appointed unto them a law, even the law of Moses. And many signs and wonders and types and shadows showed he unto them concerning his coming. And also holy prophets spake unto them concerning his coming, and yet they hardened their hearts and understood not that the law of Moses availeth nothing except it were through the atonement of his blood. So the whole connecting glue that made the law of Moses what it was is an understanding of the atonement of Christ and why that was really the lifeblood of Israel. In Mosiah chapter 13, Abinadi said to the priests of Noah, who were claiming to teach the law of Moses, he says, Now you have said that salvation cometh by the law of Moses. I say unto you that it is expedient that ye should keep the law of Moses as yet. But I say unto you that the time shall come when it shall no more be expedient to keep the law of Moses. And moreover, I say unto you that salvation does not come by the law of Moses alone. And were it not for the atonement, which God himself shall make for the sins and iniquities of his people, they must unavoidably perish, notwithstanding the law of Moses. These are people who understood that the law of Moses availed nothing without Jesus. And then later in Mosiah 16, he also says, Therefore, if ye teach the law of Moses, also teach that it is a shadow of those things which are to come. So we're going to study the shadow, and we've got to understand what it is a shadow of, and we've got to see Jesus in the law of Moses. And then in Alma 25, at the culmination of the conversion of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, it says, Yea, and they did keep the law of Moses, for it was expedient that they should keep the law of Moses as yet, for it was not all fulfilled. But notwithstanding the law of Moses, they did look forward to the coming of Christ, considering that the law of Moses was a type of his coming, and believing that they must keep those outward performances until the time that he should be revealed unto them. And now they did not suppose that salvation came by the law of Moses, but the law of Moses did serve to strengthen their faith in Christ." And thus they did retain a hope through faith unto eternal salvation, relying upon the spirit of prophecy which spake of those things to come. The Book of Mormon prophets saw that the law of Moses was only a compass that pointed them to Jesus. And if you take Jesus out of the equation, then the law of Moses is very, very heavy. So this week, as we go through the ordinances and some of the festivals and some of the practices, what's going to make this beneficial is if you find Jesus in each one of these. Let me give you an example, and then we'll jump into the text. In Exodus 36, verse 19, they cover the tabernacle with a covering, the tent of the tabernacle, 
the actual building that was considered kind of the temple itself, the holy place and the holy of holies, they covered it with a ramskin dyed red. Now, there's no mention of why. There's no, hey, put a star here, and so you've got to do that. You've got to pause and say, okay, they covered the temple with a red covering. The atonement covers us, just like this cloth covered the tabernacle. It is the blood of Christ that covers our sins. The Hebrew word kafar, from which so many times in the scriptures we translate the word atonement. And I love that. I think William Tyndale invented that word, and I think it's a beautiful word, at one moment. But it comes from the Hebrew word kafar, which literally means to cover or a covering. And the atonement is a covering. And we saw that in the Garden of Eden, when God covered them with coats of skins, he covered them like the atonement covers us. So that's what's going to make this week's reading beneficial, is if you pause and find Jesus in all of the symbols of the tabernacle, and then in the ordinances, the laws, and the festivals of the Law of Moses. So with that in mind, go to the 35th chapter of Exodus. Now, this is where the Lord calls for willing offerings. Do you have anything that you can contribute? The the precedence is set because in section 124 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we begin this same way. Bring the very best materials that this earth produces because we're going to build an edifice worthy of our God. So the Lord asks for donations. He asks for, do you have something that you can contribute to the house of God? But notice he emphasizes that word willing repeatedly. It needs to be a willing offering. Now, I know we talk about the children of Israel as being stiff-necked and stubborn, and they needed a lower law. They needed an outward law, a carnal law. But if this story is any indication of the kind of people they are, it's a beautiful story. The Lord says, bring me the best that you have, gold and silver and colors, because we're going to build a worthy building to God. And then in the very next chapter, they have to say, whoa, 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 we've, we, we have way too much. The children of Israel gave way more than they needed for this edifice, which is a tribute to this people. And I think we ought to point that out because we're so quick to point out how stubborn they were and how slow to remember the Lord they were. But this is an indication that they really did love God and they wanted to serve him and they were willing to give of their substance to build a tabernacle. And and that really is the gist of the 35th and 36th chapter. Uh, Chapter 35 of Exodus, verses 4 through 19, is the call for contributions. And if you're sitting here wondering, okay, where are they getting this gold? Back in the third chapter of Exodus, in the very last verse, it talks about the women, quote, borrowing from the Egyptians jewels of gold and silver. And then at the very last part of Exodus 3, it says, ye shall spoil the Egyptians. During the plagues and during the discussion between Moses and Pharaoh, the Lord says, you're going to take their stuff, their gold. And then if you go into the 38th chapter of Exodus, go to verse 21. It says, this is the sum of the tabernacle, even of the tabernacle of testimony. And then it talks about the individuals that are constructing it or working with the gold and to make the articles of the tabernacle. And that's in verse 22 and 23. 
these individuals are the ones who are putting this together. And then in the 24th verse of Exodus 38, it says that they have 29 talents of gold. 29 talents of gold. Mike, that's incredible. And a a talent was about 75 pounds. That's a lot of gold. So yeah, and then 100 pounds of silver. They have 70 talents of brass as well. This is all chapter 38. And then they dedicate it to God. And as Bryce said, the temple is participatory. God gives the commandment and God's presence is there, but we contribute to the construction of it. And so salvation is this dance between the divine and our best efforts, and God will make up the difference. Yeah. I love that we referred back to Bezalel and Aholiab, that the Lord had prepared people capable to perform the work. And I think you need to pause and find yourself in those verses and say, look, the Lord sent me to earth with specific talents and abilities so that I can help build the kingdom. You have a talent, you have an ability that the Lord sent to earth at this time so that he could use that ability to perform the work he needs performed in the latter days. I love that reference to the Lord sent the right people at the right time to perform the work. If you want to know more about the ark and the table and the menorah and those things, we covered that in the last podcast, but just know we put that outline in the show notes so you can see exactly what verses are talking about each of the articles of the tabernacle. And big picture, I see this as the journey home. So the reason we addressed that in our previous podcast is because that's where the Lord instructs Moses on how to build them. So you can either study the instructions of the Lord or the actual carrying out of the plans. And Come Follow Me chose to study the carrying out of the plan in the latter parts of Exodus. But either way, I think all of us need to be familiar with the elements of the tabernacle. We need to know what the altar of sacrifice was. We need to know what the laver was. We need to walk into the holy place and recognize that on the left, I'm going to see a tree-like looking candlestick that has the light. Ahead of me is a beautiful gold table with incense on it that represents my prayers. And to the right is a beautiful table with bread. Why would there be bread in the holy place? So Mike and I talked about each one of those symbols as a journey through the telestial, terrestrial, and into the celestial. And again, that's what we're going to cover this week as we build those elements. And in the 39th chapter, we get into the priestly garments, and specifically, it's going to talk a lot about the garments of the high priest. And I also like to emphasize that if we see the high priest as a representation of Jesus, there's a lot of really awesome parallels. And one of them is in verse 4, 5, and 6, where there are these black stones, these onyx stones that he wears on his shoulders. And the high priest has on these stones carvings of the name of the 12 tribes of Israel. And then next to his heart, in verses 10 through 14, he has 12 stones, and on each of these stones is the name of one of the tribes of Israel. So ponder that. They were reminded from the very beginning that we are being carried on the shoulders of a Savior. And once again, Messages of Christ did a really great video that we're going to link, I think is excellent. And then verse 22 through 23 of Exodus 39, it talks about the high priest wearing this blue robe, and later we'll read that it is without seam, meaning that it's of one piece of material. 
And then we read, it's really interesting, verse 24 and 25, that there are these pomegranates of blue, purple, and scarlet, and then with them they have these bells. And so the idea is when the high priest walks in the tabernacle and is doing the work or the ministering of it, that you can hear him walking. And I like the idea of a pomegranate because a pomegranate is full of seeds. I love that. Of all the fruits I've ever eaten, no fruit has more seed inside than a pomegranate. And so what does that seem and to so teach? And so ponder that. Why yeah. would we put pomegranates on the high priest's robe? Now, if this man represents Jesus, that's a wonderful discussion you could have with your children. Find Jesus even in the pomegranates and the bells of the high priest's robe. The, the idea of seed is a really big deal in the Old Testament. And Abinadi is going to talk about this when he quotes Isaiah, where he says, when his soul was made an offering for sin, meaning Jesus, he shall see his seed. And Elder Holland talked about this when he said, when the Savior suffered on the cross and in Gethsemane, he saw his seed. And then who are his seed? According to Abinadi, the seed of Jesus are those who listen to the prophets, have those heard the testimony. from his sacrifice. Yeah, they're his seed. And so the idea of seed is a really big deal in temple theology. You see, the Holy of Holies was built on top of the threshing floor where the seeds are brought. So this is a really big image. Yeah. And I want to point out that this is a wonderful opportunity to talk to your children about the temple. Again, I'm going to say it again. We said it last week. It is as dangerous to not talk appropriately about the temple as it is to talk inappropriately about it. Sometimes we don't say anything, and our children grow up not knowing anything about the temple, and the temple becomes kind of this foreign, unknown entity. There are numerous opportunities in the Scriptures to point out wonderful things that happen in the temple. For example, chapter 40 is the washing, anointing, and clothing of Aaron. When you go into the temple to prepare to do the work of the temple, there is a symbolic washing. There is an anointing. You are clothed in a holy garment, and this comes right out of the Old Testament. So I would gather my children together and say, let's talk about temple ordinances. Let's talk about what happened in the Old Testament. And so in verse 12 of chapter 40, Aaron is washed. And that's a very symbolic moment. It means. God is washing you and cleansing you. And then I would point out in verse 13 that Aaron was anointed. You anoint the heir to the throne. Simba was anointed as soon as he was born because he's the future king. He's marked for a blessing. The children of Israel, when they left Egypt, they marked their houses to receive a blessing from the angel. And then I would point out in verse 13 that a holy garment was put on Aaron. I'd maybe take my children back to the Garden of Eden and talk about the coats of skins that were put on Adam and Eve in the garden, which represented the sacrifice of the Savior, and that Aaron is going to wear a garment that is symbolic of Christ. So this is a wonderful opportunity to have some great discussions with youth, with your children, with your family about the things that happen in sacred places. Now, don't share things you've promised not to share, but there is an opportunity to talk about washings and anointings and being clothed in a garment. And there's a ton in there. 
And I think that this really does teach that the tabernacle is like a miniature cosmos and it's the miniature journey home. So if you look in the 19th verse of chapter 40, it says, he spread abroad the tent over the tabernacle and put the covering of the tent above upon it. And then verse 20, he took and put the testimony into the ark. Those are the tablets and set the staves on the ark and put the mercy seat above the ark. That's the lid. And he brought up the ark into the tabernacle and he set up the veil of the covering and covered the ark of the testimony as the Lord had commanded. And so the idea is we're putting things in order. So then what does he put in order in verse 23? The bread and then the candlestick and then the lamps and then the altar and then the incense. On and on we go. He put verse 28 the hanging at the door, verse 29, the altar of burnt offering, and then the labor. And then finally, verse 31, they wash their hands and their feet. And then verse 33 says, so Moses finished the work. And then 34 to the end, the very end of Exodus is this idea of God's presence, this cloud aboding upon the tabernacle, and that the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And we kind of geek out in the show notes on this, on the idea of the kavod. The kavod is the glory that the King James translators take that word and they run with it. And there's a lot of theological import in that word. It means glory and splendor and heaviness and greatness that God's kavod or his glory is abiding with the tabernacle. Now, The creation of the tabernacle kind of follows the same parallel that we talked about at the very beginning of Genesis, the creation of the world. And Bryce mentioned it briefly just a minute ago where he said there's the command to build it and then there's the building of it. In last week's podcast, we talked about the tabernacle because that was the command to build it. And so there's the command to build it and then there's the building of it. That parallels a lot the creation of the world. And so... I'm going to quote this guy a lot in the show notes. He's not LDS. His name is Michael Morales, and he's done a lot of work on this idea of the tabernacle. And this is what he said. He said, throughout the Bible, the cosmos is described as the tabernacle pitched by God, often employing the architectural features of a house. And so if we go back and read the creation, and then we go back to Exodus and we read the creation of the tabernacle, what we start seeing are incredible parallels, meaning that God is teaching us how he creates. And then in these chapters in Exodus, men are participants in the creation of sacred space. So there's a lot going on. There's things in the creation of the tabernacle that go beyond what the text is saying. And so the end of Exodus, the second book in the Pentateuch, the glory of God is dwelling with them. Now, you might be interested in something that was said in the dedicatory prayer of the Kirtland Temple, that idea that God is here, that God's presence is here in this tabernacle. In the Kirtland Temple dedication, Joseph asked that thy glory may rest down upon thy people and upon this thy house, which we now dedicate to thee that it may be sanctified and consecrated to be holy, that thy holy presence may be continually in this house, and that all people who shall enter upon the threshold of the Lord's house may feel thy power and feel constrained to acknowledge that thou hast sanctified it, and that it is thy house, a place of thy holiness. It's that same idea that his presence is in that building. Absolutely. With that in mind, note, there's five books to the Pentateuch, and 
the third book is Leviticus. And sometimes in scholarship, they look at the way that texts are constructed. And there's a really big pattern in the Pentateuch of a chiastic structure. And a chiastic structure essentially starts with a point, and then it ends with that same point. And so what they try to look for is like, what's the center? And that's called the the apex of the chiastic structure. And so to kind of point your eyes to the visual aspect of this, we made a slide at the very beginning of the slides where you can see that Genesis and Deuteronomy, in a sense, teach some of the same ideas and that Exodus and Numbers cover some of those same ideas and that Leviticus could be seen from certain perspectives as the apex or the center point of the entire Pentateuch. And what's interesting is the center of the center, like the heart of all Leviticus, is the chapter that talks about Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. And what is Yom Kippur? Bryce and I are going to say this a bunch of times. It's all Jesus. So if you read it that way, and like I said, we put it in the slides, you can see visually how it's constructed. If you read it that way, Jesus is the center of the Pentateuch. So what is Leviticus? Leviticus is essentially focusing on sacrifices, cleanliness, holiness, becoming a different people. And so if we look at Leviticus that way, and then we go into the center of the center, we're back to Jesus again. So let us do this, Bryce. Let's jump into Leviticus and let's walk through a sacrifice as it's portrayed in the very first chapter of Leviticus. And this will be so much more meaningful if you personify it, if you personalize it and say, I'm going to do this myself. Now, I'm grateful that we don't offer burnt offerings. I'm grateful that the shedding of animal blood has ended. That's Third Nephi chapter 9, verses 19 and 20. We no longer offer animal sacrifices after Jesus. But I think it would be very beneficial to walk my family through this process. So allow me to jump into the text, and I'm going to take my children. Now, I have 10 children. The oldest is 29, and she has three of her own. The youngest is a seven-year-old boy. I've got several teenagers right now, and I'm going to bring my family to the tabernacle and offer a sacrifice. So come with me as we do that. There are six steps to offering a sacrifice that are presented here in Leviticus. The sixth one is not very clear. That becomes clear later on. But step number one is the selection and the presentation of the offering. So everything we're going to do here is going to point to Jesus, and it's going to point to me. It's going to point to myself, our family, and Jesus. So we've got to select an animal. So in chapter 1, verse 2, he says, bring an offering unto the Lord. And then verse 3, let him offer a male without blemish. So I need to pick an animal that is worthy to represent Christ. My family's going to choose a lamb because I think nothing typifies Christ better than a lamb, a sweet little innocent lamb who's white and clean and without blemish. So we're going to present that lamb at the temple. Did we choose an offering that's worthy of Christ? That's step number one. Now step number two seems a little bit bizarre. In verse four of chapter one, I'm going to do this as a group, so allow me to just embellish, but we as a family are going to lay our hands upon the head of the lamb. 
And the reason for doing that is I'm going to dedicate this lamb as myself. This lamb now represents me. And I'm going to pause and turn to my family and say that inside each one of us, inside our family, is an animal, a wild animal. And this is the part of me that lies and cheats and is jealous and is lustful and gets angry and hits and hurts people that every one of us have an animal inside of us. And that animal can't go to the celestial kingdom. And if I want to go where God dwells, I have to get rid of that animal. And so now this lamb represents Jesus, and it represents the animal inside me at the same time. In that sense, it could have been the most decrepit, ugly-looking animal on the place of the earth if it's going to represent me. But it also represents Christ. Verse 3 is the difficult part. I think my children have the idea that we walk the lamb into the temple, offer it to the priest, and then we go home. This is the difficult moment, where in verse 5 it says, He shall kill the bullock before the Lord and the priests. After my family lays our hands upon the lamb, the priest hands us the knife. Now I'm going to hand it to my 17-year-old daughter. I want you to just picture what she says to me when I hand her a knife. Can you just see the expression on her face? Dad, why does the lamb have to die? The lamb didn't do anything wrong. And we're going to have a wonderful discussion with my family, and I'm going to say, Hallie, why did the lamb have to die? He didn't do anything wrong. Why did the lamb have to die? And then I'm going to look at her and I'm going to remind her that now the lamb represents the animal inside me. It represents Jesus, but it also represents the animal inside me. I cannot take my natural man into his presence. So either I kill the natural man or the natural man will kill me. Which is it? And in a moment that I don't think my 17-year-old daughter would ever forget, we kill the lamb. I want you to see the tears streaming down her cheek. And the next time the ugly lamb shows itself in our family, the next time there's fighting and quarreling, we need to remember the killing of the lamb. And then step number four, at the end of verse five, the blood is sprinkled. And I'm sure my children would be say, dad, what are you doing? What's this part about? Why are we sprinkling the lamb's blood? And we would, again, we'd have two discussions. Discussion number one is, tell me what Jesus did with his blood. He sweat great drops of blood. His blood was shed. Okay, why else? What does it have to do with the animal inside of us? And I would have a great discussion. I would take them back to when Moses came down from the mountain and put his people under covenant and sprinkled the blood on them. It was a way of making a solemn covenant. But I think there's some symbolism we could talk about, and that is how much of this animal that's in our family and in ourselves, what do we need to do? We need to bleed it out. We've got to destroy that animal in ourselves and in our family, and we could have a wonderful discussion about step four, the sprinkling of the blood. Elder McConkie says this, he says that the blood symbolized both life and the giving of one's life. Death is the consequence of sin, and so the animal was slain to show what happens when we sin. Also, the animal was a type of Christ, 
through the giving of his own life for man by the shedding of his blood, one who is spiritually dead because of sin can find new life. And out of this grows a spiritual parallel. As in Adam, or by nature, all men fall and are subject to spiritual death, so in Christ and his atoning sacrifice, all men have power to gain eternal life. So we're back to that idea that the blood symbolizes life. That's right. So step number five, verse seven of chapter one, the sons of Aaron, the priest shall put fire upon the altar and lay the wood in order. Verse eight, Aaron's son shall lay the parts, the head and the fat in order upon the wood that is on the fire, which is upon the altar. But the inwards and his legs shall be washed in water and the priest shall burn all on the altar to be a burnt offering. As the animal is burning, I would have a discussion with my children about, look at what's happening. How do you make the animal in our family and the animal in each one of us go away? Fire makes the animal go away. And I would even maybe open up a hymn book and we would read hymn number two, the spirit of God like a fire is burning. And I would have a discussion that we could make the animal in our family go away if we let the spirit come in more frequently. And I would probably open up to Mosiah chapter three, verse 19 and read the scripture that says that the natural man is an enemy to God and has been from the fall of Adam and will be forever and ever unless he does what? We and our natural man will be an enemy to God unless we yield unto the enticings of the Holy Spirit and put off the natural man. I've got to do the things that bring the Holy Ghost in my life, letting the animal be consumed by fire. Now, the sixth step is not really spelled out in chapter one. It it becomes more of a tradition later on, and that is that we would take a portion of that animal home. We wouldn't burn the whole thing. We would specifically burn the brain, the heart, the inwards, the feet. And I would probably have a discussion about cleansing our thoughts, our desires, where we walk, where we go, what we click on, and what's inside of us. We burn those things. But then we would take a portion of that sacrifice home, and we as a family would celebrate. We would celebrate and rejoice in the victory of Christ, the Lamb. And then we would celebrate a commitment as a family to make the animal that lives in our family go away. And we would celebrate each one of us committing to making the animal inside of us go away. Now, that's a beautiful moment. And even though I'm grateful we don't offer animal sacrifices, you would imagine that doing something like that, my children would remember. And we would remember that I am saved by the death of that lamb. So there's an example of taking the law of Moses and finding Jesus in it and be not just with him, but like him. That really does kind of encapsulate the spirit of not only this offering, but all five offerings. In Leviticus, there's all these offerings that are enumerated. There's this offering, the burnt offering, and then there's the grain offering, but it's typically called the meat offering in Leviticus 2. And I always like to joke with my students and say, it's called the meat offering, but there's no meat. 
It's kind of funny. And then there's the fellowship or the peace offering, and then the sin offering and the guilt or trespass offering. Those are the offerings that are in Leviticus. And if you're more interested in getting into the weeds of these, there's a really great book by Andrew Jukes called The Law of the Offerings. It's excellent. So after the offering section in Leviticus, in those first initial chapters, we get into the institution of the priesthood. And it goes throughout chapter 8 through chapter 10. And what we read is that they put on the things associated with the priesthood. And we're back to this idea that they're washed and that they're anointed. Interesting verse that you might want to look at is chapter 8, verse 23, where it talks about the blood that's put on Aaron. It says that it's put on his ear and upon his thumb and his right hand and the great toe of his right foot. Now think about what those body parts symbolize as you think about that. You know, what we say, what we look at, where we, what we hold in our hands, what we click with our fingers, so to speak, where we walk. Yeah. And then after that, then in verse 30, it talks about the holy anointing oil that had five parts and that it's put upon the altar and upon Aaron and upon his garments. And so we have blood and we have oil and we have the setting apart of the priesthood. And so then Leviticus kind of explains the way they understand the priesthood in the ninth chapter. So now go to the 10th chapter, and verse 9 talks about them staying away from fermented drinks. It says they're not to drink wine or strong drink. I find this really interesting. The priests are set apart, and then you go to Leviticus 10, verse 10. And I think this is a big part of the why of the book of Leviticus. And so if somebody said to me, Mike, what is one of the main reasons why we have this stuff in Leviticus? You could boil it down to something like this, Leviticus 10, 10, that ye may put a difference between the holy and the unholy and between the clean and the unclean. That's a really quick way to see what's going on and the why. I think sometimes when we're teaching, if we get into the weeds of all the things, we can kind of get lost. And so if we look at the why and we try to see Jesus in the midst of all this, it really helps. And so with that in mind, the priesthood is discussed in these chapters, but in my opinion, it's fragmentary. I say this all the time. I don't think that everything in the Bible is as it was, But what we have is this fragmentary report of these individuals that hold the priesthood, they're set apart, they're washed, they're anointed, the blood is put upon them, the oil, and the main idea is that they're made different or separate. And then we get into these purity laws, and that's chapters 11 through 15. Chapter 11 is about clean and unclean animals, and a lot of the kosher rules of Judaism comes right down to this chapter. This chapter really sets apart the different animals. And what's interesting, a really easy way to remember at least the seafood part is if the animal comes out of the ocean, if it looks and acts like a fish, you can eat it. If it comes out of the ocean and it doesn't act like a fish, you can't have it. So crabs, that's out. Oysters, sorry kids, can't have it. And so in Leviticus 11, God says, this is what you can eat. This is what you can partake of. And today, if you go to Jerusalem, most of the restaurants are going to serve their food kosher based on these laws. We're not going to get into the weeds of Leviticus 11. So next is the 12th chapter, and it talks about purification and childbirth. And then the 13th chapter talks about skin infections and diseases. And in the 14th chapter talks about leprosy and being cleansed from leprosy. And Jesus followed those laws. When Jesus cleansed a leper, he would command them to go and follow the commandments of Leviticus. 
And then finally, in the 15th chapter, is all this stuff about bodily discharges. Now, for this podcast, I'm not going to get really specific. But if you go into the show notes, you can read some explanations as to why. So to be short in speaking on this, I'm going to kind of encapsulate skin infections, diseases, purification and childbirth, and bodily discharges in this one comment. And so as I've studied Judaism and as I've kind of looked into the weeds as far as why is this clean and why is this unclean, I found this these comments by Jacob Milgram to be very poignant and to the point. He says, quote, a mere glance at the list of the impurity bearers in the Torah, the leper, the gonorrheic, the corpse contaminated, and the bodily discharges, all these things suffice to reveal that this list is arbitrary and artificial. It doesn't even focus on the disease or even on the disorders. Their common denominator in all these things is death. You see blood... It represents the forces of life and all these bodily fluids that chapter 15 talks about, they represent the forces of life. But when those fluids, including blood, when they leave your body, they're now dead. So that signifies death. So in the case of scaly disease, leprosy, chapter 14, the symbolism is explicit. It says that Aaron prays for his stricken sister when she gets leprosy, when Miriam gets it. And this is what Aaron says, let her not be as one who is dead. That's Numbers 12, 12. Furthermore, such disease is powerful enough to contaminate someone who is under the same roof. And it is no accident that it shares this feature with the corpse. That's Numbers nineteen fourteen. And so the wasting of the body, the common characteristic of all biblically impure skin diseases, symbolizes death and the death process as much as does the loss of bodily fluids. And so if you read things like the woman with the issue of blood and she's unclean, it doesn't mean that women are unclean. And it doesn't mean that her issue of blood makes her somehow impure. But I think what Jacob Milgram is trying to teach is that if we look a little bit deeper into these things, we see a spiritual truth or a spiritual teaching that those things that are part of our life the fluids in our body and so forth, our skin, if they leave us, especially fluids, then they become impure. And then we have to go through the ritual of purity, which includes washing. Why? Because we're talking about life and death. Now, on a strictly hygienic point of view, we can see some common sense here. If someone's bleeding, right? What do we do? We wipe up the blood and then we sterilize it. We wash it. We try to make it as clean as we can. I mean, we do that today. And so some commentators read this stuff and say, hey, maybe this is some scientific approach to stay away from causing contaminants. I don't necessarily approach it that way, but I appreciate and understand people who do because it does make sense, right? But knowing this, knowing what Jacob Milgram is saying, I'm going to say this. What if it, once again, comes down to Jesus, the idea of life and death, and at the heart of Leviticus is this constantly repeated approach that we are to avoid death and approach life. And that's kind of like 2 Nephi 9. In 2 Nephi 9, it's Jacob who says, hey, listen, guys, there's two ways. There's the way of life and there's the way of death. And we must choose life. So if we read these sometimes strange purity laws in chapters 11 through 15, and we read it that way, to me, it actually makes sense. Now, with that in mind, we get into what's going to be the heart of Leviticus, and that's the 16th chapter, Yom Kippur, or the Day of Atonement. 
Leviticus 16 regulates what's to take place on the Day of the Atonement. Although the title of this institution does not occur in this chapter, the title Day of Atonement is actually found in Leviticus 23, verse 27, Yom HaKaparim, and also in the 28th verse, literally, Day of the Atonements. In its usage, it's commonly called Yom Kippur, and then sometimes it's just called the Day. So, Michael Morales, he really advocates that the Day of Atonement becomes, quote, the literary and thematic center of the entire Pentateuch. It's the high point of the entire text because everything points to it. And so we put in the slides a graphic where you can actually see the chiastic structure in a pyramid format, meaning we go from Genesis to Exodus, and then we get into Leviticus with the sanctuary laws, the priestly laws, the personal laws, and then chapter 16 is the pinnacle, the day of the atonement, and then we go back down the pyramid, all the way down through the rest of Leviticus into Numbers and Deuteronomy. And it's this idea that it's the center of everything. And I, if you're interested in this, I would highly encourage you to read his book, Who Shall Ascend to the Hill of the Lord. It's a great book where he says, essentially, that the entire chapter is a microcosm of the entire ritual world of the Pentateuch. It's the central pivot point of the entire book, that the high priest has to offer an offering for himself, and then he's going to offer an offering for the whole house of Israel. And in the context of this, there's going to be two goats. And so after he does the sin offering for himself, then he takes together two goats. Let's read verse six. Aaron shall offer his bullock of the sin offering, which is for himself, and make an atonement for himself and for his house. And then verse seven, he shall take the two goats and present them before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle of the congregation. And Aaron shall cast lots upon the two goats, one for the Lord and the other for the scapegoat. And then he shall bring the goat which the Lord's lot fell and offer him for this sin offering. So one goat will die for the whole house of Israel. And what will he do? He will take the blood of the bull, that's for himself, and the blood of the goat. So go to verse 14 of chapter 16. He shall take the blood of the bull and sprinkle it with his finger upon the mercy seat. So now we're in the Holy of Holies. And before the mercy seat shall he sprinkle the blood with his finger seven times. Verse 15. He shall then kill the goat of the sin offering, that is for the people, and bring his blood within the veil, and do with the blood as he did with the blood of the bullock, and shall sprinkle it upon the mercy seat and before the mercy seat. Essentially, both the blood, that of the bull, and of the goat, so the bull is for the high priest and the goat is for the house of Israel, are put upon the mercy seat and upon the altar. The way I like to teach this is that it's a mixing. It's a mixing of the blood of the bull and the blood of the goat. What does that mean? Well, one for the high priest, one for the whole house of Israel. Now, remember, if we read this in the context of who is the high priest, Jesus, we see a lot of things. And if we juxtapose that with the idea that Jukes is talking about, that the offerer is also the offering, meaning that the bull represents not only the sins of the offerer, but the bull also represents the offerer meaning his sin, but also him. In other words, the death of these animals represents the death of Jesus, but also, like Bryce said, 
the death of the animal in us. And so verse 16 says, he'll make an atonement for the holy place. And then it talks about him coming in and going out and the blood that's put not only on the mercy seat, but if you go to the end of verse 18, on the horns of the altar, and he does this seven times, he's sprinkling the blood upon the horns of the altar. So after he mingles their blood, this represents a coming together of these two animals to symbolize an atonement, not only for the high priest, but for the whole house of Israel. And in the midst of all this, we still have one animal left. And that's this animal that is going to be called, verse 8, the scapegoat. You see, this goat isn't killed at the tabernacle. But what it says in verse 10 is that this animal is led without the tabernacle and sent into the wilderness. By the hand of a fit man. Yeah. Now, it's not in here, but Jews for centuries debated, okay, what is this? And there's a whole corpus of commentary called Tractate Yoma, where they get into what they do with the scapegoat. And it's not, like I said, not in the Bible, but essentially what they do is they take it far away, far, far away from the tabernacle and send it into the wilderness. And the scapegoat isn't dying at the tabernacle. And I think there's some deep symbolism here, Mike. Let me just jump in and talk about a modern application. The scapegoat is supposed to represent Jesus. No one else is capable of carrying my burdens away. Jesus carries my burdens far away from me, where I'll never have to live with them again. Sometimes when people hurt us, when people cause us pain, we lay the burden of that pain on their shoulders. You're now the scapegoat. You have to carry my burden away. And I think that's the most logical thing in the world because they caused my pain. They caused my pain. Therefore, they have to take it away. But they can't. The imagery here is that Jesus is the only person who can carry that burden far away from me where I'll never have to deal with it again. And the invitation is, stop laying the burden on someone who can't carry it away. Even though that makes the most logical sense in the world. That person hurt me. That person caused incredible pain in my life. Therefore, I'm going to lay the burden on them to fix what they broke. But let me ask you a sincere question. Can they? Even if they begged for your forgiveness— can it carry the burden away? Now, I think they should. I really do think they should do their part to make amends. I'm not trying to get into that. But the only person who can take that burden far away where you'll never have to deal with it again is the Savior. That's what the Day of Atonement was about. So stop laying the burden on someone who can't heal me and lay the burden on the Savior. I know some of you listening have been incredibly hurt by other humans. I can't even begin to fathom the pain that they have caused you. And I can appreciate that in your heart, you require them to fix what they broke, but they can't. Even with the most sincere apology, which they should do, they can't carry it away. But there is someone who can with all my soul, I testify that he can carry that burden where you can't go. Far out of the camp, way into the wilderness, and I'll never have to deal with that burden again. 
But you only will know that healing if you take the burden off the false scapegoat and put it on the true scapegoat and let him carry that burden away. That's good. You know, I think the scapegoat, Bryce, can be so many things. I like that image of it being the Savior. I also like the image of the Savior being the high priest as well. So if you go to Hebrews 9, 11 through 14, and 24 through 28, that ninth chapter of Hebrews, the author basically says, no, Jesus is the high priest, but he's also the offering, and that's chapter 10. So the veil even being the death of Christ in his flesh as the offering, but he's also the offerer. And I think this image of the scapegoat is actually multivalent because Jesus could be the scapegoat, but he could also be represented as the high priest and the offering. And the scapegoat could also be another type. You see, in the 18th chapter of John, John is the only one that gives us this story, but it tells us the story where Pilate doesn't want to crucify Jesus. And so at one point where Jesus is completely battered and torn and been scourged, Pilate is begging the people there, hey, I don't want to kill this guy. I find no fault in him. And they're shouting, crucify him. And in one point in the 18th chapter where Pilate is essentially trying to find a way out, how can I not crucify him? He puts Jesus in front of them next to this man named Barabbas. And he says, one of these guys can go free. And the crowd shouts for Barabbas to be set free. So he's set free and then Jesus dies. And the interesting idea put here, and I think John's playing with the wording, Barabbas, son of the father. The son of the father is set free when the son of the father dies. And so in one sense, I am Barabbas. I was set free because Jesus died. And so the image of these two goats, one's to die and one's to be cast out, could be portrayed that way in the 18th chapter of John. Now, interestingly enough, the scapegoat is La Azazel. So another way to read it, there's like multiple layers here. I'm not telling you guys which one to go with. Maybe it's all of these. Anyway, just a thought. But another idea is La Azazel, that that is, at least in the extra biblical literature, you get into some of the Enoch stuff. This is one of the fallen angels that does the rebellion against the gods that we've talked about early on when we did some of the stuff going on with the giants. So La Azazel could represent the devil. And so some commentators say that this scapegoat represents, quote, the devil himself, La Azazel. And so the sins are put upon the head of the fallen angels, who afterwards, one of them is going to be called Satan or Satan. And then this commentator writes, for no subordinate evil spirit could have been placed in antithesis to Jehovah as Azazel is here, but only the ruler or head of the kingdom of demons. Okay, what is this commentator trying to say? Well, when we approach holiness, we have to cast out La Azazel, sin. Sin must go far, far away. So in one sense, that could represent La Azazel or Hasetan being cast out of the pre-earth life. Hey, God's holding a council and you guys are being knuckleheads. You got to go. You got to get out of here. Now, we link this in the show notes. And like I said, this isn't for everybody, but I think some of you guys come to this podcast because you're like, no, we want to geek out. So we link this in the show notes to the Tractate Yoma, where in Judaism, there were all these commentaries and tractates or discussions on what does the Day of Atonement mean and what do we do with Law Azazel? It just says in Leviticus, you cast it out. And so what they decided to do was, 
okay, we're going to write about what we did. And so what they did was they, it's kind of like in Lord of the Rings. I'm sorry to go there. But if you remember the scene where they light the fire to tell everybody, hey, we're going to war. So when you see on the top of the mountain, the fire, and then you're the guy at the next spot, then you light the fire. And then that's how they sent the message. Well, they would send the goat far away with a person who was well able to go up and down the hills and they're going far away from Jerusalem. And then they'd set a signal and then they go to the next spot. And then they'd set a signal. And then when they get really, really far away, they would take the goat and they would take a heavy rock and tie it around its neck and toss it down a cliff. (laughs) Now, what does that symbolize? I think we're back to that idea Bryce talked about is the sin's going to be abolished. It's going to be sent far away. Won't come back. Yeah, it's so far away. It won't come back and I don't have to deal with it. Yeah. Mike, I love the idea that here there is a symbol that can be interpreted in so many ways. That's how the gospel works. And that's the beauty of symbolic language is he's going to portray an image that you're going to find multiple applications for. Don't play the game of, well, which one's right? The one that guides you in that moment is the one that is right. And so symbols apply to so many different moments in our lives in so many different ways. Yeah. That leads us to chapter 19. This is the last of the Come, Follow Me chapters. It was just 1, 16, and 19. So 1, where we introduced the burnt offerings and the different offerings, 16 on Day of Atonement. Now we jump to 19, which is kind of a collection of a whole lot of smaller bits and pieces of the Law of Moses, a whole lot of thou shalts and thou shalt nots. It's an invitation to holiness. I think Leviticus 19 can be read as an invitation for us to be different and to be holy. And there's a lot of stuff in here that has to do with mercy. So for example, if you look in verse nine, it talks about reaping your harvest, but you're not to reap the corners. And the image I want to put in your mind is a square and inside of the square is a circle. And those corners where the circle doesn't touch the edges, that's what you're to leave. This is how they took care of the poor. And that image is made by a compass and a square. And it's the symbol, in one regard, it's the symbol of the unification of heaven and earth. And this is weird, but the earth is the square and heaven is the circle. And when those two images are put together, we have the connection of heaven and earth. And that symbol of the square and the circle is a symbol of the temple. And that symbol of the square and the circle is the symbol of the entire book of Ruth. We will get there later, but Ruth embodies that principle. Ruth has to go and glean the fields. She's taken care of by Boaz, who represents Jesus. So Leviticus 19.9, we could do a 30-minute podcast on. It's so good. But to be short in speaking, this is how they took care of the poor. Now, the 19th chapter talks about a lot of other things, but remember, it starts in verse 2, where God says, you shall be holy, for I am holy. So that's the why, like what we're doing. And so after we get into the whole point in verse 9 about taking care of the poor, there are some commandments in here about don't steal in verse 11 and don't defraud your neighbor in the 13th verse. There's an interesting verse in verse 14 where the Lord says, thou shalt not curse the deaf. Now, I put a whole paper together that we'll link in the show notes just on that verse because I could geek out on verse 14 for a long time about don't curse the deaf, but then we'd have a four-hour podcast. So if you're interested, go to the show notes and we'll link that for you. But I think that's worth pausing and talking with whatever group you teach or lead or your family and talk about, look, don't take advantage of other people's weaknesses. Don't hold grudges. 
don't want to get revenge. That's what this chapter is really getting at, is making our hearts pure, because God is pure, and we need to treat people with kindness and tender feelings like God treats us. This is a beautiful chapter to help them see kind of the nature of Heavenly Father. Yeah. And then verses 11 through 18 essentially talk about this idea of loving your neighbor as yourself. Thou shalt not avenge nor bear any grudge against the children of thy people, but thou shalt love thy neighbor as thyself. I am the Lord. So that's an important thing. Love your neighbor. I want to talk a little bit about verse 19 because, frankly, it can be kind of confusing. Verse 19 is this prohibition of mingling seed and garments of linen and wool. And essentially, it has something to do with this improper mixing of animals, plants, or clothing. Now, the rationale for these commandments is not provided. It doesn't say. But the root is defined in Deuteronomy 22.11, and it's this idea of a mixture of linen and wool. And so some commentators argue that the mixing of different materials typifies a commingling of the holy and the profane. Hence, some scholars maintain that since each plant or animal had its own life principle, it was not to be mixed with another. And so a similar prohibition is found in the 22nd chapter of Deuteronomy, verses 5 9 through 11. Now, I don't totally understand why that's there, but it's repeated a couple of times, and it seems to indicate this idea that we're not to mix things. Why? Because we're to be holy. And I think that's an easy way to look at it. Now, I do know that that verse, verse 19, is used by a lot of people today to undermine the authority of the biblical narrative. They pick verses like this, they cherry pick them, and they say, oh, you believe in biblical whatever, marriage, biblical commandments, keeping the Sabbath. Well, what about this commandment? I see there you have a woolen sweater and you have a linen pair of pants. You're clearly violating Torah. And I don't really like to get into the weeds. I kind of look at these verses to say, okay, what is the rationale behind it? What is the idea that it's trying to communicate? And how can I take that idea and incorporate it in my life? Why? because we're to be holy. And I would take you all back to the concept of the Abrahamic covenant. Remember the Lord says, I will bless and protect you if you will influence the world and make my name known. You've got to be separate from the world. And the failure of the Old Testament is that they didn't do that. They wanted to have a king so that they could be like all the other nations. They want to be like everyone around them, which means the world has influenced them rather than them influencing the world. And that really was the failure of the Old Testament. So the Lord says, fine, if you want to be like the world, then I'm going to scatter you out among the world because you're no different than they are. And I can't preserve you like the Abrahamic covenant requires because you have stopped influencing the world and have been influenced by them. Now, they're going to completely swing the pendulum the other way in the New Testament. They're going to say, look, the problem of the Old Testament is we were so like the world that we got destroyed, so let's not be like them at all. Let's be better than them. Let's treat them like garbage because they're not one of us. And you can see the pendulum swings all the other way in the New Testament. But this, I think, is one of those insinuations that the Lord is saying, you can't be like the world and save them. Now, he's not saying you're better and you can't live among them. He's just simply saying you can't imitate the things of the world and be my people. You have to influence the world, not be influenced by the world. And Bryce, everything you just said kind of ties into the end of the 19th chapter. 
a lot of these things are ways that God put a difference between the Israelites and their neighbors. So verse 26, you shall not eat anything with the blood, neither shall you use enchantment nor observe times. And then verse 27, you shall not round the corners of your heads, neither shalt thou mar the corners of thy beard. This idea that they were not to trim their beard or round the corners of their heads. There are many Orthodox Jews today that still follow this injunction when it comes to grooming. And some people might read this and say, okay, what difference does it make if I do or don't cut my hair? And I don't know if this totally is a one-to-one application, but there were a lot of things that the neighbors of the Israelites did with their hair that were associated with pagan practices. If you want to know about that, go into the show notes. We give you a lot of detail. In fact, maybe too much detail, but we give it to you so that you can see we've got to be different than those around us. Now, in our dispensation, we've had a modern prophet who has said things like this. This is President Hinckley, and he's talked about, hey, we should avoid tattooing and piercing our bodies. And we put this stuff in the show notes where you can go right to the church news and you can read his words. So the way that I try to contextualize these things is I look at, okay, what have modern prophets said and why? Well, maybe it starts a conversation. Maybe when you go to work and everybody's drinking their latte and you're not, Maybe it starts that conversation going where people say, hey, why are you doing this? And then when they ask you, now you can teach them about what you believe. And people can see that what we believe permeates into what we do. So that essentially is chapter 19. Now, we want to close with a chapter that's not followed and come follow me. And that's the chapter on the feasts. Chapter 23, which is really worth your time to read, even though it's not in the come follow me assigned chapters. Yeah. The 23rd chapter is this idea about remembrance. And once again, I like to see it in a big picture. So we actually made a whole post called Leviticus 23, the seven commemorative feasts. And I love this graphic because we see essentially that there's four feasts in the spring and three in the fall. And those feasts are in order. Number one, Passover, and then unleavened bread and then first fruits, and then Pentecost. Those are the four spring feasts in order. And then we get to the three fall festivals. You have the Feast of Trumpets, the Day of the Atonement, and then the Feast of Tabernacles. Those seven feasts are discussed in this 23rd chapter of Leviticus. I would say this, when you read Leviticus 23, you can kind of get lost. And I think as a teacher, it's our job to kind of try to make the complex as simple as we can. And so I want to recommend this book by an LDS author. Her name is Gail Boyd. The book is called Days of Awe, Jewish Holy Days, Symbols, and Prophecies for Latter-day Saints. You see, you don't get this every day, but sometimes you find a book that's been written by a member of the church who also has a Jewish background, and that is Gail Boyd. She's a Latter-day Saint who was born to Jewish parents, and she was raised in Washington, D.C., and so she comes from a unique position. She was raised with these Jewish festivals, and yet she believes in Jesus, and so the first part of the book, she talks a lot about these different seven festivals and how they point to Christ, and then the second half of the book, she gets into the weeds with hey, if you want to have a Passover feast with your family, here's some cool recipes. Here's some ways that you can do it. And here's the order in which you can do this stuff. And so if you're interested in that, I would just recommend that book to you. In this podcast, we're just going to kind of talk about each of these festivals. And so 
the Passover feast is going to be the first one. And we, we talked about that when we were in Exodus 12. That Jesus got them out of bondage. And he will continue to get us out of bondage. And the bondage of death is broken in the resurrection of Christ. It's that constant reminder of the victory of Christ over bondage and death. Yeah. When they left, they killed the lamb. And the Passover feast is to remind the Jews of that experience. So with this, they have what's called the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and it's celebrated for the next seven days after the Passover meal. So a lot of times they talk about Passover week. You have the Passover, and then you have seven days of eating unleavened bread. And it's during this time that the Jews make sure that the grains that they use and the bread that they eat is all unleavened. And leaven can be seen as sin. I mean, we read this in Matthew 16 and 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6 through 8, where leaven is likened unto sin. So they take that out of their homes. And by the way, they do this in preparation for the entire week. And so after they eat the Passover and after the week-long festival, they celebrate another feast called the Feast of First Fruits. And that's in Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14. It's like a symbolic first bushel of grain. They take the first bushel of grain and they offer it to God. And they actually wave it. It's called the wave offering. And they do this to thank God for the first fruits out of the ground. Now, I just want to stop and think about that just for a second. We've just covered three feasts briefly. We have the Passover and then unleavened bread and then first fruits. What does that have to do with Jesus? We have Jesus who died, and he is this unleavened bread. He died for our sin. There's no leaven. There's no leaven in him. But then the first fruits, Paul's going to call Jesus the first fruits of them that slept. He's the first grain. We're back to seed. He's the first grain out of the ground. But Paul says everybody gets resurrected. So first fruits could be symbolic of the Savior's resurrection. And then seven weeks later, plus one day, That's where we get the word Pentecost. It's a Greek word. Seven weeks later, plus one day, we get Pentecost, which is another celebration where they bring in more grain. Pentecost is also called the Feast of Weeks, and it comes from that word, that Greek word for 50, and this could symbolize the harvest. Some look at this as memorializing the giving of the law to the Israelites by Moses on Mount Sinai. Now, I got to be really careful here because, see, Even though some people say this, it isn't, to me, it isn't exact, but there's this tradition that it was on the 50th day that Moses got the law. But I'm just going to read this right out of Exodus and you decide for yourself. Exodus 19 verse one says, in the third month, when the children of Israel were gone forth out of the land of Egypt, the same day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. And so some say following some kind of like a loose chronology of Exodus 19. And many Jewish interpreters look at this and say that Moses was given the law 50 days after Passover. And they're adamant about this. Like I said, the scriptures don't definitively say this, but I see where they're getting this. You see in Judaism, they're looking at, okay, what is the purpose of the Feast of Weeks? It's this bounteous harvest when Moses got the law. Well, Christians look at the day of Pentecost and they superimpose this with Acts chapter 2, when there was this bounteous harvest, when Jews from all over came to celebrate Feast of Weeks, and then the apostles stood up and said, the Messiah has come, and the Spirit dwelt upon them, and they were converted. And that's the day of Pentecost. And so 
if we've ever talked about this in the church, about a Pentecostal season of great converts or a Pentecostal meeting, or if you've ever heard of Pentecostals, like who are Pentecostals? There are these people that are Christians that believe in charismatic gifts of the Spirit, like depicted in Acts chapter 2, speaking in tongues and having glorious manifestations. And so sometimes if you have an overabundant spiritual experience, we've heard people say it was Pentecostal. Or if you ever have convert friends who are from the Pentecostal church, sometimes they're saying things like, we need to have more of this. And I would agree with our Pentecostal friends and say, as Latter-day Saints, we need to have bounteous feelings of the Spirit. That's why I always say, sing the hymns, especially the sacrament hymn, because that is, a, to me, a Pentecostal experience, feeling the Holy Ghost. So those are the first four. And then we get into trumpets, atonement, and tabernacles in what it's going to say in Leviticus is the seventh month. But that is the beginning of a new year. In fact, trumpets is actually going to be called the head of the year. So the Feast of Trumpets is Rosh Hashanah, which is literally the head of the year or the new year. And literally they would blow trumpets and they would say, hey, we have a new year. And what have we done? We've brought in the harvest. It's the seventh month or what we like to call in the West fall. What I find it interesting is as a teacher, we start the new year in September. Why? Because the harvest. But then we have this other calendar that says, no, we start the new year in January. It's like we have two new years. And the roots of these are way ancient, back in antiquity, when the harvest is brought in and all the cultures are doing this. They're doing this in Egypt. They're doing this in Canaan. They're doing this in Mesopotamia with the Akitu festival. They have this big festival where they bring in the harvest and then everybody does a reset. And we talk about the creation and God. And we have this big festival where we tie ourselves back into God and we're grateful for the bounteous blessings of the harvest. Now, not only are we calling in the new year, but it's symbolic of calling out everybody to come to the temple because something important is going to happen. You see, on this holiday, they would have and hear the occasional blast of the ram's horn or the shofar. And when they sounded the shofar, that was symbolic that they're to come to the temple. And so some Jewish scholars say that it signified the beginning of the year, the final harvest, God's promise to gather Israel. It's a time for new revelation, new covenanting, and a time to prepare for the millennium. Now, if you think about all those things that the shofar and the blowing of the trumpet represent, what's fascinating is years ago, Lynette Reed, who's a Latter-day Saint, wrote an article, and we linked it in the show notes, and you can go read it. And I've double-checked her stuff, and it's, it's on point. She says, and I find this fascinating, Bryce, she says, in 1827, when Moroni came to Joseph Smith, the 17-year-old boy, on September 2nd, 1827, that was the same day as the Feast of Trumpets. And her point is, I don't think this is a coincidence. And then for four years, he comes to him. And these are called the days of awe, glorious days. And it's a 10-day period. So after the Feast of Trumpets, then they have Yom Kippur, Day of Atonement, which we've talked about. We've kind of laid that out in the 16th chapter. And then finally, we have Sukkot, or the Feast of Tabernacles. And this was a week-long commemoration where observant followers would live in these makeshift tents or shelters to commemorate the 40 years that they were living in temporary dwellings before they came into the promised land. Now, Latter-day Saints know that from the Book of Mormon, when the Nephites come to the temple to hear the words of King Benjamin, that they were, quote, in their tents. 
the Nephites gathered around the temple. They set up their tents while they listened to the speech and what I would say is the coronation of the new king. But they heard the speech of King Benjamin, and this was called the first Israelite temple drama. We've talked about it a lot. But the first Israelite temple drama was where they saw the king as the embodiment of the Savior a representative of the Savior. And they saw the great drama of the ages, the creation. They saw ritually portrayed the Savior die and get resurrected. Women had parts. A lot of this stuff is in the Psalms. They would sing. There would be feasts. And at the end, the king would feed everyone. There's an excellent book just on this one idea. And it's a massive tome and it's awesome. And it's by LeGrand Baker and Stephen Ricks. And it's called, Who Shall Ascend to the Hill of the Lord? the Psalms in Israel's temple worship, and in the Book of Mormon. It's a great book. Now, at the end of this great feast, the Feast of Tabernacles, they would covenant themselves to keep the commandments, and the king would be accountable to the people and to God. He would swear to keep the laws of God, and as he did it, and as the people obeyed, and they covenanted to those things, there would be a promise of fertility and blessing. And in a way, If I take my spiritual lens off and I put on my secular lens, we kind of see this symbolically portrayed in the inauguration of the U.S. president. He is accountable to the people, and he stands before the people, and he puts his left hand on a sacred book, and he raises his right hand, and he says that he will sustain the laws of the land. You see, even though he's in charge, He's accountable to us. Now, because we're secular, we say things like he's accountable to the principles of truth or those things that we call to be self-evident. But as a Latter-day Saint, I would say he's accountable to God. And that's what they would do at the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, Bryce and I really felt that it was important to at least look at the 23rd chapter and see everything from the Passover to the Feast of Tabernacles, pointing our hearts to Christ. I mean, if we think about every single one of these seven feasts, it gives us some indication as to who this God is, who we worship, whether from the fact that he died in Passover to the first fruits of them that slept in the third feast to number five, the Feast of Trumpets, that he's going to call us. And then how do you miss the sixth feast, the Day of Atonement, the individual animal that dies? And then finally, we put it all back together at the Feast of Tabernacles. We remember who we are. We covenant for a new year, and we go and we follow the commandments again for that year. And then another way to look at that is we kind of practice this with the sacrament where we say, Lord, this week I'm going to do better. And so I just want to testify of that idea that these feasts have great meaning. And they come at critical times of the year before we put our seed in the ground. We're going to pause and celebrate. When we pull our harvest out of the ground and our blessings have been bounteous, we should pause and celebrate. And so we plan those moments, plan a holiday where we remember and we commemorate. And I think the pattern here is we all need to pause and remember the very end of the Book of Mormon. Moroni says, when you get this book, would you pause and remember all that God has done in your life? Remember that he got you out of Egypt. Remember that when you were wandering in the wilderness, he brought you into a promised land. Remember him when your harvest is great. Thou shalt thank the Lord thy God in all things. And with that, we'll see you next time when we cover parts of the book of Numbers. Thanks for joining us and make it a great week. 
Talking Scripture is not an official production of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The opinions expressed in this podcast are Mike and Bryce's opinions only. We refer you to official church sources and the church website to clarify any doctrinal questions.